Today, commercial life and markets through the history of political thought, and why some of the greatest capitalist and free market thinkers of the tradition think we should have more taxation and more redistribution. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Today, uh, I have with me my friend Jeffrey Berkison, who has just written a book called A History of Political Thought, Property, Labor, and Commerce, from Plato to Piketty. Um, the book is brand new, and it's kind of a run through the history of political thought. There's 13 chapters, each devoted to a different author. Uh, you've written a book called A History of Political Thought, and that is a very tall order, right? That's, uh, there's a lot of material there. So so how have you narrowed it down? How is What is the focus of this particular history of political thought? Sure. Yeah. Um, it is. Um, it is uh, an ambitious <laughs> endeavor, to be sure, um, to try and tell my own version of the sort of uh, canon of the history of political thought. But the way that I decided um, to make this task more manageable was um, by focusing in on a central thematic concern, and that concern was market society. Right, the role that markets and commerce play in the lives of individuals and in the lives of communities. So I decided that that would sort of be the um, theme running through the whole book. Right, what do all of these um, canonical thinkers, some more canonical than others, but what do they all <laughs> yeah. have to say about? Um, the effect that commerce has on our lives. So again, I cash that out um, in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the big themes um, through the book is uh, human nature, right? So what do uh, these philosophers have to say about uh, human nature, about uh, what a well-lived human life looks like? And in some cases, what we find is that uh, engaging in commerce pulls us away from that good life. <laughs> right. <laughs> and in other cases, um, it's an essential part of it. Um, I spend a lot of time thinking about um, community, right? Um, how does um, the existence of a market and of commercial activity affect the well-being of communities, right? Um, does it undermine the possibility of a deeper and more meaningful solidarity? Um and of course, uh, I also want to think uh, about the state, right? Um, right. What is the um, appropriate relationship between the, the state and the market? So um, different thinkers have much different ideas about what the state ought to do, for example, when it comes to the regulation of markets, um, the uh, redistribution of income, th things like that. Okay, so... so, so so maybe if I if I can summarize, like, because, you know, I've read this book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, what you've got is 13 chapters, a lot of really big names like Plato, Nietzsche, Machiavelli, Locke, so on and so forth. And, and what you're doing is you're taking each of them. And instead of, like, going really in depth into their political philosophy, mm. you look at their philosophy through the lens of this, like, I don't know if I want to say capitalism or market side, but the specific aspect of human life, which is 
commercial activity, productive activity, Mm -hmm. earning a living, getting money, getting rich, uh, contracts (laughs) and stuff like that. And it's like conceived, you know, I'm just throwing out a bunch of words because it's conceived in different ways, but there Mm. is this kind of aspect of human life and there's a lot of different approaches to it and um, different relations to like, as you said, your three big themes were, I think, how it's related to human nature, um, how it relates to community and and what is the state's role mm-hmm. in dealing with that? Is that more or less? Yeah, right? absolutely. I, I guess I just sort of had this lingering sense that this was sort of like a very useful sort of answer key that we can use to sort of map onto each and every thinker. And it provided, um, I th- I hope, a valuable way to compare them, right? To see the differences, to see where um, there are, are certain alliances, <laughs> surpri- some surpri- more surprising than others, and where there are deep disagreements. I think that when you sort of um, often learn this canon, I kind of found that th- this question of markets and commerce and work and money was often sort of treated as a kind of side issue, right? Right. Something um, peripheral, right? To the uh, center of things. And really, actually, what I found is that when we plugged this uh, idea of the market right into the the center of things, we were still able to to get to the core of every thinker, but we also sort of began to see them in a a new light. And I think a much more practical light. Like, so, so, so for example, someone like Hegel, right it's yeah. it's hard to imagine a more obscure and difficult thinker but i think that when you center what he has to say about the ownership of property about getting a job and learning the skills necessary to do that job these are like surprisingly practical and intuitive and compelling claims right he's sort of like it's a way to bring um, a lot of these thinkers down to earth in a, in, in a way that um, is tangible. I think because right? we're like all with still Hegel, grab- you're, you're 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 more right about this uh, with Hegel than I think any of the yeah. other thinkers of your book. Because if you start, if you want to learn what Hegel, Hegel has to say about politics, and you start logically with the logic, <laughs> you're never going to get anywhere, right? Um, but if you, if you want to learn about Hegel and you start with the philosophy of right, in particular, this stuff on civil society, then that's where I, at least when I was learning this as an undergraduate started to like find my way in to what's going on. Um, but like before we, we jump into Hegel, which is like, you know, in a way it's old timey, but in a way it's, it's, it's very modern. Um, I just want to give a little bit of, uh, of an overview of like the plot of the book. Okay. Of like the, the, uh, ups and downs of <laughs> of of the reputation of commercial life within political philosophy. Sure, so the first yeah. the first chapter you have is like Plato, Aristotle, uh, Aquinas, I believe, and it's if I can, you know, be just slam it into a a, a nutshell, it's like why old-timey guys hate commercial <laughs> life. Right. Yeah. Um, so these older thinkers are really critical of this aspect of life. Um, can you tell us why and why why for so long? Sure, sure. Um, I th- yeah. So the very first chapter of the book is the sort of ancient and medieval background. And the overarching theme of that chapter is the um, 
deep-seated suspicion about commerce that runs through the sort of key thinkers, right, um, uh, in, in, in these eras, right? So that's certainly true of uh, Plato. It's true of Aristotle, though I, I think that there's a little bit more nuance there. Um, and it's certainly true of Aquinas as well, right? The, again, the idea of the chapter is that Money making pulls us away from the things that really <laughs> right. matter in life. <laughs> like, right? like so what? Pla- so Plato, I mean, in the Republic, there's, I mean, listeners of your podcast will know that there's a particular image of human flourishing, right? That informs the Republic and that the um, money making motive, right? Is something that pulls us away Right from that good life. Yeah, we should right? be doing philosophy and studying triangles, not trying to yeah, stack up our right. uh, drachmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, more, more, more triangles, less debits and credits. Right. right? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, and in fact, I mean, a big part of chapter one of the book is discussing um, books eight and nine of the Republic, where sort of the unleashing of the market and the unleashing of the commercial impulses that uh, animate it is puts us on the path to tyranny right it's uh, an unimaginable tragedy um with aristotle um again as i said it's a little more complicated i think um he's um a little bit friendlier um to commerce but uh, at the end of the day i think he shares plato's um suspicion right that um unleashing this desire to make money pulls us away from the things in life that really matter. Okay. Right? So obviously as um, a guy who's making a podcast that so far has just been about Plato, I'm interested in what ancient thinkers and medieval thinkers have to say on their own terms. But that is not, I don't think, the only interest of your book. It seems to me that you make these historical thinkers uh, speak to today's debates, contemporary debates. And so I'll just Mm -hmm. outline kind of the ideological landscape as I see it, and maybe we can talk about Mm -hmm. how your book applies to it. Now, the way I see it, at least, you know, as I was growing up and over the past 30, 40 years, uh, the debate to me about commerce and labor has been primarily between one side, which is a kind of laissez-faire capitalism, very free market. Some people call it neoliberalism, mm-hmm. but this idea mm-hmm. that markets should be completely free. They do a lot for us, and states should be minimal. They shouldn't be interfering. Um, and on the other side, you have a reaction, or mm-hmm. you have the other side, which is more interventionist. He's a greater role for the state, and mm-hmm. at the extreme, you might have some kind of totalitarian communism that people you know, would try to scare us with in, in the Cold War. But... I mean, the essential debate seems to be between a kind of neoliberal, laissez-faire ideology and a more interventionist one on the other side. And you're bringing us a book that is full of historical characters like Plato, Machiavelli, Hobbes. Um, How does your book speak to some of today's issues before we go on to the... Sure, absolutely. Um... I think you're right that we can describe um, our era as the kind of triumph of um, a kind of, in my mind, objectionable 
laissez-faire ideology, right? The last um, thinker that I cover in the book is um, Piketty, and um, he uses the language of uh, neoliberalism, but fundamentally what he's talking about is the sort of laissez-faire attitude um, uh, that you're describing, right? Which is, is boils down to the state ought to do as little as possible when it comes to the regulation of markets, redistribution of income, monitoring of um, wealth and income passed down between the generations, et cetera. So, like et cetera, minimalist cetera. state, night uh, night watchman, you might. That's you know, right. Say. That's right. Um, and I guess if you read the book, um, you'll see that that is a kind of. Um, simplistic and borderline deranged view of some of the things that very smart people have said about how the state ought to govern the market. That's great. I think that's a really interesting part of your book is how it shows that a lot of um, the big pro-market philosophers of the past might not look upon today's free market ideology uh, and be happy about it. And we shouldn't be surprised because obviously they were operating in a completely different context, which you do a lot to restore them to. But let's get back to that um, idea of looking at what very smart people in the tradition have said about the relation between the state and the market. Uh, We talked a little about chapter one, and you got Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas, and they're all very, very suspicious of all commercial life. Money making is going to distract you from what's important. But then there is a shift. In the early modern period, you start to canvas some thinkers who have more positive things to say about that market. So, or to say about the market. And um, can you tell us a little bit about that historical moment, even if that moment lasted a couple of hundred years? Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my entry point um, here is uh, with Machiavelli, right? Okay. Um, and I... I um, interpret uh, Machiavelli and Hobbes, I sort of lump them together despite their differences. And the reason I think that they belong together is because I think they're the first important thinkers to start to question um, whether or not the Platonic, Aristotelian, and Christian attitude towards commerce is actually good for us. Right, so we have all of the, the centuries of hostility to, to money-making and this emphasis on the need for... Um, Um, piety. And Machiavelli and Hobbes are important and worthwhile because um, it's possible for them to imagine a new way of doing things, right? A new uh, foundation for social life, right? Not um, virtue, not piety, but commerce, right? Right. Oh, I get, okay. Commerce, well, look, I, I might have my reservations about how specifically... Um, commercial Machiavelli and Hobbes are, but there's certainly, I think, this turn from, you know, Plato saying uh, focus focus on the forms and uh, Aquinas saying focus on God, and then Machiavelli and Hobbes saying, you know what, actually maybe life on earth this this life is is mm-hmm. worth is worth a damn, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. commerce might play like a big role in mm-hmm. our, our worldly happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I mean that as I take it from your book is like the beginning of the shift where people start more and more to develop um, the positive side. Yeah. Of, I mean, I, I guess what we could say mar- is we get a kind of um, 
um, instrumental or practical or very pragmatic attitude towards commerce, right? In Machiavelli and Hobbes, right? In the in the Christian tradition, it's right something to be be feared and to eradicate, right? Whereas Machiavelli and Hobbes treat the impulse to accumulate as a fact about our nature, right? Mm-hmm. And a potentially um, useful pillar for for building a new kind of life together. Like maybe we can live uh, more um, safely together, more peacefully, right? If um, we we recognize that we possess these interests and give them a, 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 a meaningful standing. Okay, great. So we go from ancient medieval thinkers thinking, you know, market bad. But then with Hobbes <laughs> and Machiavelli, there begins to be this recognition that there might be some practical instrumental benefits uh, to commerce to market society but there's also a lot more to the pro-market argument so where do we go from there sure yeah so so a big um so i guess what we could say is that the really sort of meaty part of the book is when we shift from this sort of um, practical or pragmatic right attitude towards the market towards a much more robust defense of it Right. So in Machiavelli and Hobbes, right, there's sort of like this sense that if we just let people accumulate their property and live a quiet life and get rich, and if as long as the state doesn't take their stuff, we can live, be quiet and happy, and we're not going to be killing each other over obscure conceptions of what God wants from us. So, so that's a, again, a, a practical or uh, um, utilitarian defense. Um, but the story then changes, right? We start to get a kind of ethical defense of the market. And this, you know, starts with Locke, right? Who says that um, a market society is more likely to be a, a, a society with secure rights, something like democracy, though not, of course, our idea of democracy. But I guess this story really takes off with um, Adam Smith and um, with the, the Germans like Kant and Hegel. Okay, okay, so, I mean, you mentioned something there, a distinction between instrumental defenses of the market and, like, what mm-hmm. you called more robust ones, and I, I want to sharpen that a little bit. Okay, sure. so, so I agree, I guess I see how Machiavelli and Hobbes are giving um, instrumental defenses of the market, but I also, I, I also think that other thinkers do too so smith as he's commonly understood like you know correct me if i'm wrong but part of the point of markets is that we can uh, produce more and we can all like get rich mm-hmm. together you know the rising tide raises mm-hmm. all boats um division of labor etc mm-hmm. etc et um we are we are going to be more wealthy and i think i see something like that um in hayek too that the attempt to plan economies is bound to uh a disaster it's going to destroy wealth mm-hmm. and and result in tyranny so that is kind mm-hmm. of the instrumental instrumental side of it. i think it goes like a bit beyond machiavellian hobbes so just first i want to ask is that more or less right yeah i think i think that's absolutely right i think that there um can i mean i think both sides can be president in, in smith and in hike and in anyone else which is to say there are both um instrumental right aspects to their defense which is that 
So, for example, a market society is simply more likely to be m more efficient, um, um, or a market society um, will be less corrupt because lawmakers have less power, or a market society is simply the only option we have given the diffuseness of economic information. So that's sort of the more on the more instrumental side of the spectrum. And all those ideas are present in Smith and in Hayek too. But what I mean by the ethical side, right, is that um, a market society um, is good for us as human beings, which is to say it's good, it's um, the sort of society in which we can more fully harness our nature. Okay, right? okay. Fully harness and then realize our nature. Can Okay, so I want to, I'm going to push you a little more on that. I'm really interested in, here's the reason why, is because um, the Hayek-Smith efficiency pro-market arguments, look, capitalism uh, free enterprise, it just makes us richer, and that's why we should have it. Leaving aside how empirically based that is, um, this, is a mar this is an argument I think we're all familiar with and people always make to defend mm -hmm. markets, uh, mm -hmm. the efficiency argument. But I also think that these other arguments that you're talking about are there all, like, all the time. I think that people really care mm -hmm. about the moral mm -hmm. the moral um, aspect yeah. of... of uh, of commercial life. So can you um, tell me a little more about, about that, about like what is the moral defense beyond just efficiency of a big role for free markets? Sure. Sure. I mean, ultimately, and this goes back to our earlier discussion about laissez-faire. I mean, I guess there's a thread running through all these pro, uh, pro-commerce thinkers, which says that a market society is likely to be the freest sort of society, um, and that that freedom is the space in which human beings, right, fully realize, right, the abilities and talents at their disposal. Okay. Um, tell me a little. So we have, markets are important because we're free, but what freedom means is a kind of self-realization. Mm -hmm. It's like I have these capacities mm -hmm. and I go to work and um, it makes, it's an important part of human life that I can exercise these capacities. Is that, who are, who are we talking about here? I think that there's um, an inkling of this in Smith that really gets picked up right by, by Kant and Hegel and who take it much further than I assume Smith would probably be comfortable with. I think the ethical dimensions of the argument are a bit off to the side in Smith. I think that he has a much more practical, political, programmatic concern. Right. Well, you can't, you right? can't on the Brits we for like pragmatics and you can't on the Germans for the like spiritual <laughs> dimension right. of money-making. That's right. That's exactly right. I think that the, the German interpreters to Smith really um, focus in on this idea of freedom. And for them, for them it's, um, um, it cannot be detached from this idea of realizing oneself in the world. Okay, so let's start, let's start, let's separate the two, Kant and Hegel. <laughs> Kant, give me the like quick summary of uh, Kant's view of the role of markets and like why they're important and good. For human freedom, uh, the I mean, the key idea I think is that um, competition, 
uh-huh. right, is what draws out our talents. What makes us um, re- refine and develop our rational capacities, right? This isn't done when things are easy and peaceful. It requires um, competition and um, market society is sort of the essential site of that competition. So, okay, is, in Khan's view, is it that um, the competition, the struggle, is it a struggle to survive or is it a struggle to win? (laughs) I think it, oh, sure. I think that it starts out as the former, but then um, becomes the latter. So we are like these competitive beings who just want to beat each other. And <laughs> and uh, that's maybe bad morally, but the upside of it, the like cunning of reason or or, or whatever, is that um, sure it helps us develop our capacities and our reason, at least our instrumental yeah. reason, um, in some co- way. Co- like Kant's phrase is our um, asocial sociability, right? We want to best other people. We're fundamentally competitive by nature. Um, and that means we can't live without other people either. And so markets are one way to channel right, this competitive uh-huh. energy, right? We're not talking about war waging anymore, right? It's a kind of um, Habesian impulse in a way, right? It's like we all... Um, are self-interested and we're um, manic and vital and we're always acting and we need to find new and better and more constructive ways, right, to channel all these competitive energies. And um, and then the story, I guess, of uh, when as we move into the Germans, right, is how this um, becomes uh, an account of what freedom looks like in daily practice. Suddenly freedom becomes indistinguishable from um, our status as participants in market life. All right, so the market is like uh, a safer way for us to compete than war, and mm-hmm. and it helps us develop our capacities. And so <laughs> in a way, they're like, there's an economic benefit, but there's also this benefit that we're not killing each other. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so how, do, how does that change when we move from Kant to Hegel? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, we have a lot of uh, metaphysical baggage operating in the background, right? You know, for the, for, for the Germans, right, nothing is haphazard. Nothing happens willy-nilly, right? If, um, if we've managed to detach ourselves from feudal life, if we suddenly have this open, dynamic uh, economy with a, a new degree of, of class mobility, right? If these things exist, right, then there must be some reason for their existence. And the reason, uh-huh. right, is um, that the existence of these instit- these new modern institutions and these new modern practices is that it makes our freedom possible. Okay, so right, it's like by a logical view, uh you're saying so these are like people who believe that everything happens for a reason yes i don't think that you can uh get around that right in uh-huh. either uh Kant or hegel certainly not and i mean later there's going to be a big back i mean there's going to be a big backlash against this against this idea of course but yeah i think that i mean this is the the aim of the philosophy of right to sort of 
reconcile us to our social world, right? I mean, again, nothing happens um, haphazardly. Like, mm-hmm. human life can't just be the realm of chance, right? Where um, there's no rhyme or reason to the things that happen, right? If we um, used to be serfs and now we're free, uh-huh. right? Well, then we need to understand, right, what um, what what that freedom means and what it actually looks right. like. So, like, oh, Hegel looks at the shift, and this is a lot of the all the thinkers we've been talking about so far. You know, from from Machiavelli to Hegel. Um, they're still all in this like long shift from a more feudal hierarchical society to yeah. a modern egalitarian one. And Hegel's mm-hmm. more towards the end of like, you know, he's he's the most recent thinker we've talked about so far. And so mm-hmm. he cares about modernization in this sense, right? The move from mm-hmm. like feudal mm-hmm. feudalism mm-hmm. to modernity. And he sees there's an inter- internal truth to it and something good to it. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Great. It's happened for a reason. Um, Mm -hmm. What, on Hegel's view, is that reason? Uh, Why has has this happened? What is the expanding role of commercial life in modernity? Mm -hmm. What does it give to us? Yeah, it gives us a a space to figure out who we are. (laughs) So it's like a self-realization, like... um, you know, yeah. oh, I always wanted to be a, a telemarketer, and now I can go out in the <laughs> in the economy and become a telemarketer and uh, realize that aspect of myself and develop those important important capacities. I, I mean, I, I I think that that I mean, I, I that is the, the view is right that work right uh-huh. is um, um uh, not the highest but a very meaningful instantiation of our freedom, right? So we figure out who we are and what we can be, right, through work, right? I mean, Hegel says the same thing about the family, right? The family is another important um, instantiation of our freedom because we take on different roles, different responsibilities, and it's in the willing fulfillment, right, of those roles and responsibilities that we become ourselves, right? There, There is no us apart from our status as, you know, son, husband, father. Uh-huh. And he applies the same intuition to our work, right? There is no us apart from our... Um, working as teacher, right, podcaster, right? We we figure out who we are, exercise our talents, and then, you know, become members of a, of a community too. Right, okay, so it's like a, this important part of a social integration and identity through your job, through your work, you become who you are, you find out who you are, and you're like linked to others. Um, yeah. And this happens through the market, which he calls civil society, um, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, through the family and through the state. Is that is that right? Well, I th- yes, that is certainly, the, the I think, the highest form of freedom for Hegel, right? That's the third side of ethical uh-huh. life is the state. And, you know, for him, um, a patriotism is also um, a constitutive part of the, of the well-lived life. So, like, I mean, this is... But that's where things get right. kind of frightening. <laughs> well, I mean, you were talking about, like, there's no... There is no I apart from we uh, kind of language. Mm. And, and at yeah. least in Hegel, like, that is true. You know, he is on the communitarian side of 
mm-hmm. you know, the the liberal communitarian split. But if we look at specifically Hegel and his philosophy of right, mm-hmm. we talked about the state, the family, and civil society or the market. And mm-hmm. isn't it right that um, in the market, that's when I is mostly me. Like we get to know ourselves as isolated, atomized individuals precisely within the market as, as, a, as a part of our life. Yes, and that's a, a valuable and essential moment in the history of freedom that Hegel wants to tell, right? How um, we uh, assert ourselves, right? The, the I, and we, we work on the world and our ideas are instantiated in the world and we see ourselves and our ability to do things and to make things. But that's also not the end of the argument um, or not the end of the story that he tells, right? In becoming, in asserting ourselves, we also come to recognize our fundamental interdependence, right? And this interdependence manifests itself um, in different ways, right? We um, depend on other people as customers, for example, right? We depend on other people as fellow producers, right? I mean, when... Um, you know, when we make things, we're all, we're, you know, accessing a whole history of productive activity, right? That makes us um, both, in, you know, individual producers, but also members of um, potentially very long-lasting communities. Right. Okay. So this is one of my favorite chapters of the book, and it's one of my favorite arguments because I'm a big Hegel fan. Um so the idea is that the market isn't just important because it creates prosperity, but it is a social institution. And mm-hmm. when individuals take part in it, we are trading with each other. We are integrating socially. We're making connections with others. It kind of has a social integration aspect. Mm-hmm. But there's also a self-realization aspect. We get to know ourselves. We get to know our capabilities. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like self-realization, recognition, and this is a large part of what we're doing um, in commercial activity. And it's not only in the market, but that's one important aspect of of our lives and our identity. And the reason I find this so interesting is because this is kind of always implicit and often explicit still in today's debates over economic matters. So the reason jobs are often so important politically is not just because people need some kind of basic income to survive, although they also need that. It's that um, work provides a kind of social identity and standing, and you know you get all sorts of depression and mental health issues from long-term unemployment. And so the question of our participation in market life is much more than a question about resources. It's a question about... Um, identity, self-realization, and I guess uh, you would say freedom, right? So could you could you speak a little to that? Do you see this Hegelian argument still in today's debates? Yeah, no. I, yeah, I think that's, um, a, I think, an important part of the book. I mean, I think it runs through so many different thinkers in, in the book. I mean, if we celebrate the market, right, the reason we celebrate that market, uh, market society, is because of the 
contribution to human freedom that it makes. And again, I think the contrast to the feudal world is a pretty powerful one, right? Um, in the early modern period, when all these thinkers are grappling with this new set of institutions, right, it seems to them to be a very good thing, right? We were, what before, we were enslaved and our prospects for living a, a, a happy and prosperous life were nil, right? And now the world is much more open, right? There's a higher degree of mobility and suddenly... Um, more people are more free than they ever have been before, right? Um, now, of course, when we map society today, right, onto that sort of defense, um, I guess modern society doesn't compare <laughs> very favorably, right, with, with that this idea well, I mean, of freedom uh, that I'm describing. I, I, would, I would still take... I think I would still barely take driving for Uber over being an actual medieval serf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I, this is at the heart of why people defend right, the, our sort of society, right? And so, it, I mean, the obvious question that our conversation has raised, right, is if that society no longer embodies mm -hmm. the, the central value that made it desirable in the first place. Great. I want to I dig into that a little bit because um, if the market's supposed to create this human freedom and self-realization, these values that all these thinkers in the past have celebrated about it. But you're saying um, what we wound up with doesn't necessarily create those values. Why not? Because in some ways, people might say that uh, commerce and the markets play a greater role in our lives than ever. They're in better reputation. They might even be more free than ever. So... Uh, why isn't the state retreating from the market and letting, you know, capitalists do what they will? How come that isn't creating all the freedom that um, we might hope it would based on these arguments that we've heard from Hegel and, uh, mm -hmm. and other thinkers mm -hmm. in your book? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this is um, a theme um, in the book, right? Namely... Um, what is the appropriate balance, right, to, to strike between market and state? I mean, obviously, this is an ongoing debate. But one of the things that I think was striking in all the thinkers that I covered is that neither, right, tended um, to one or at least of the more contemporary thinkers, right? Um, none of them um, um, lean wholly in one direction, right? It's sort of once we um, get into the 20th century, right, it seems like the main um, endeavor, right, the main intellectual task is to articulate where the balance between state and market ought to be struck, right? Um, um, total state control, 
right, is now off the table, right? And so too is to total laissez-faire, right? So, so um, and that's, again, that's true of um, Keynes, for example. So there's a chapter on Keynes, um, and the misconception is that he believes in complete and total state control, but in fact, right, he's a, a proponent of markets and merely thinks they need proper shepherding, right? And in fact, one of the surprising findings is that Hayek, fundamentally says the same thing he ends up um on the other side of the uh, of of this uh, argument but there's it's not a complete and total laissez-faire sort of argument that we get um even in high right. so, right? okay. i say um um that's an argument that comes from his uh deranged disciples <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah so i like, i just want to go back to that point because i think this is really important and like an important insight that comes out of your book which is that today, as I've been framing it, the sort of uh, quick and dirty formulation of the ideological cleavage or the debate is that it's mm. either absolutely free markets, laissez-faire, government stay out, sure, uh, government bad, markets good, or um, government's good, markets bad. And within this, Keynes got, we all know Keynes um, advocates governments affecting markets. He doesn't want to eliminate them, right? He's not a complete mm -hmm. state planner, but he got put on the kind of left side, the interventionist side. And so he kind of mm -hmm. stands in mm -hmm. for a little too much government interference, this leftist interventionist mm -hmm. view. And um, Hayek, he has become like this intellectual hero to the laissez-faire people, the libertarians. And, and what you're saying is actually, look, Keynes was not... Uh, didn't want the government to completely control the economy. And Hayek, this purported hero of uh, libertarianism, um, actually did advocate a certain level of of government intervention. So you could could you tell us a little about uh, about that? Sure, about about Hayek. Yeah. Or, or sure. Uh, um, well, I mean, I mean, I'm no um, uh, expert on Hayek, but I I, I was. Um, as generous to him um, as I, I mean, I was as generous to him as I was to everyone else, even though I had my own preconceptions <laughs> okay, coming okay. to it. But what I but what I ultimately found is that um, I, I didn't have to be quite so generous, um, and that there were um, many reasonable statements about um, the, the the need for. Um, careful state regulation of markets, the need for um, um, the fact that any um, great society um, um, has a, a meaningful modicum of care for its least advantaged citizens, right? There's certainly no um, anarchist impulse there, right, to annihilate the state. Um, yeah, there's like a um, lot of welfare state stuff, right? Like infrastructure, uh, public education, like you said, sure. some like yes, provision it, for the needy. Sure. And, um, and, uh, you know, again, this goes back to this idea of balance, right? He'll even say that, um, it uh, may be reasonable for the state to engage, say, in the, the provision of, um, healthcare. So, 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 uh, so something like socialized medicine, but, it, but, um, not so mu not, but we need not go so far as to eliminate private innovation either. 
right? I think Hayek's point is that states have a tendency to um, ossify and the market is the site of dynamism, uh-huh. right? So that there might be um, certain um, areas where s- state um, activity and assistance is necessary, right? But it should never be so robust or so generous as to negate the possibility of innovations, right, in the private sphere, okay. right? Because again, that's where the the um, interesting stuff happens, right? And I mean, for Hayek, that's just the 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 nature of economic information. Right. So, okay. So he, um, okay. So when you say that it's the nature of economic information, do you want to just, sorry, explain that and, and catch that up? Sure. I just, that there's a kind of, um, epistemological argument in Hayek, right. About the knowledge that is available, right. Um, to people engaged in economic activity, right. And the, the, his point is that the, to those, those who aspire to, um, a, a higher total degree of state planning, right? That this implies the presence or the possession, the the present, the existence and possession, right, of more information than any institution could possibly have. Right. Right. Economies and markets are too um, complex, too dynamic. Right. Information is too um, diffuse and dynamic to ever be. Um, to ever, uh, for state planning, right? Sure, to sure. But that, I mean, that's one thing I think is important to note about Hayek is that he's most worried about a Soviet five-year plan, right? He's not worried yes, about absolutely um, Medicare for all in the states. Yes, if we if if we understand him in context, yes, I, yes, as I tried to do. I mean, that's just it. He's got the 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 Soviets in mind, and he's got uh, he's got Hitler in mind. Right. So I guess I mean, <laughs> in, in but, but in, it, in and the, that is why. Yeah, go on. And that's why, as we we move into the seventies, I, I think that he becomes more comfortable with a kind of uncharacteristic vernacular about uh, a. Um, what how a great society treats its least advantaged mm-hmm. members this is not the sort of talk that is present in the early work and i mean i'm not i'm not going to say that it's uh, his his central concern right but 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 it but it's it, it's present you um, mentioned his deranged disciples <laughs> <laughs> who are you talking about what do they what do they say um well in the book i talk about um um, Buchanan, James Buchanan, and and Milton Friedman, mm-hmm. and these are the kind of um, laissez-faire zealots who I think there's a compelling case to be made are responsible for the catastrophe that we currently find ourselves in, <laughs> not just in the rich part of the world, but in the poor parts of the world as well. Okay, um, yeah, right? yeah, and and these are the people who have fundamentally um, edited out right any of um, these concerns. Right. For the the poorest members of our society, because for them, any form of taxation or any form of redistribution um, is an encroachment, right, on the freedom of the successful. Okay, so here, let me let me try this this out. Um, In your book, uh, Hayek is kind of the farthest, furthest right, laissez faire type guy that you have a chapter on. And then. 
and then you talk about he he has the argument that you just gave, but he still has some kind of like um, he's okay with some state intervention. Then he mm-hmm. has these deranged disciples like uh, Friedman and Buchanan, and they are the real laissez-faire <laughs> guys. And they say any interference by the government, any government action at all, except for like police to guard property, uh, distorts the market and will make us less prosperous because mm-hmm. what I think is on the face of it, both Hayek and the deranged disciples, Friedman, uh, Buchanan, on the face of it, they're trying to make um, an efficiency argument. They're saying we'll be poor. At least mm-hmm. Friedman is. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the thrust of it seems to also be this moral argument because they're they're saying they the, their whole rhetoric is that like any governor government interference is not just going to make you poor. It's like this violation. It's this violation of your freedom where where you're supposed to be you know uh, realizing yourself and working for money and getting rich. Oh, yes. Buchanan pulls no punches here. Um, And in fact, he sort of (laughs) lumps all forms of state intervention um, into what he calls a platonic worldview of uh, masters and slaves. Tell us, give me a little uh, biographical background of of James Buchanan. Not not the Um, president. Uh, University of Chicago um, uh, in the aftermath uh, of Hayek. Okay. Right. Uh, economist. I, I, I'm pretty sure he won the Nobel Prize, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. I have to look that up. But um, he... Um, may, yeah, he... Uh, I mean, of course he has the efficiency argument, but in a lot of his um, writing, he puts the um, moral argument about freedom front and center, right? And um, his feeling is is that um, um, t- taxation, for example, and um, uh, the, any form of, of um, economic planning of any sort, right, is tantamount mm-hmm. to a, a kind of slavery. Right, okay. Right, so those of you who are at least as like old as I am will remember this argument from, you know, or or if you just read any of the political philosophy of the 80s, um, this was very much the discourse, right? Like inner, inner, any interference, taxation is theft, it's slavery. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, yeah, because it implies that those who are um, um, planning um, and levying those taxes have a kind of special insight. Right. Right. A kind of special wisdom. It's the government and picking winners. They can't. Yeah. 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 Or they, they just have access to um, information that no one else does. And the, the, the idea amongst these laissez-faire um, advocates is that this information um, simply doesn't exist. Right. And that's why we can't really engage in any effective mm-hmm. economic planning. And anyone says who, who, who and any any institution that says they possess this information and can plan accordingly um, is exercising a kind of illegitimate power. Right. So, OK. Yeah. Perfectly, perfectly well summarized. Um, let's say fair argument. We can't we, we just <laughs> there's there's no way to know enough to do a, a central plan. So. Um, that's fine and good. And, 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 Hayek, and yeah. that's a good thing. 
And that's a good thing because we have this um, moral image of, of what freedom looks like, and it's incompatible right, with um, state interventions. Right. Um, you know, I, I missed that because you, you, you froze again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, that, that's all right. I, do- I want to go on to uh, a next question, which was that... Okay, so we have this like laissez-faire argument that we hear a lot, and it's like from people like uh, Milton Friedman and James Buchanan, and we return that to its origin in Hayek. And you say even Hayek would not push the laissez-faire argument as far as it gets pushed today mm-hmm. and by his disciples. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that's the efficiency argument. But I would like to also return a little more to this moral argument about self-realization in the market because we spoke earlier about that coming from Hegel, yeah? Mm-hmm. And I think it's still like mm-hmm. a really important part of why, uh, of, of the discourse today and of why people think um, people should be free to to act, you know, freely in markets, et cetera. Um, now, does the argument for human freedom, self-realization, a la Hegel, does that give us any case for laissez-faire economics? Or how would it if you tried? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um... <laughs> okay, let me put it this way. There's a lot of laissez-faire people, no, no, and I no, think the I... position's insane. No, I, and, I no, I yeah. have a, I have an answer to this. I, I, I think the answer is we can that we can only answer on the basis of of the evidence that we have, and the evidence that we have is that um, even an approximation of the pure laissez-faire that these people desire is quite radically incompatible with um, the meaningful freedom of the vast majority of individuals. Okay, why? Um, well, because when these markets, when, when our society operates um, with a kind of, with according to this laissez-faire ideology, right, we end up with some very bad outcomes that can constrain the freedom of individuals. So this happens on a couple of different planes, right? There's the um, personal plane, right? Simply the fact that the um, economy is a closed box right to the vast majority of the people who want to participate in it right one of the one, an obvious implication of this emphasis on self-realization right is that there need to be meaningful opportunities for work right right and if things are so closed off right if our economy is so radically inegalitarian that there are no uh-huh. such opportunities right that the only jobs are uber drivers and food delivery people right then what that means is that meaningful self-realization the its possibility has been negated there's for you the forgot amazon majority. picker and yeah. <laughs> yes amazon picker and i guess amazon d- d- delivery person um, so, so I mean, it's true on a, on a personal level, uh-huh. and I think it's also true on a political level, right? The like, I mean, as you know, this sort of laissez-faire world unfolds itself as it becomes more um, inegalitarian. It also tends to become more plutocratic, right? Which is to say that um, um, political power and access to it, right, is defined exclusively. 
according to income and wealth. Right. right. This is one of the big themes um, in the chapter um, on John Rawls, right, where he talks a lot about the fair value, right, of the political uh -huh. liberties, right. So we may um, all have the right to go out in public and um, speak and protest, and, um, but if those liberties are merely formal, right, if we're just yelling into the void and there's no meaningful sense that we are heard or that our demands are taken into account, right, then um, we're not fully free, right, when it comes to um, our political life. And so again, so if laissez-faire, the way it's played itself out, it seems to be the case that we're neither free um, as workers, <laughs> and we're not really free as citizens, um, then it seems to me that the... the um, rooting this defense uh -huh. of laissez-faire in freedom, right, implies a quite uh, impoverished <laughs> conception well, I, uh, of freedom. Right, okay, so... And it's sort of like a, a, a betrayal, right, of the sort of um, original root, right, uh, uh, of what I, I talk about in the book. Yeah, so I mean, that's like one of the things I think is so important for um, people who are more on the left or you know, at least not let's say fair guys, is that the concept of freedom and of self-realization is so important to our thinking about markets, right? And so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hegel falls on kind of the pro-market side in your in your story, but... Yes, without a doubt. But his argument for self-realization, it is plausible. I think that work can really serve these goals of self-development and mm -hmm. um, integrating yourself with other people and learning your importance in society. But other conditions have to hold true about the market. And if those conditions yes. about our economy today don't hold true, then mm -hmm. using mm -hmm. argument to push for more laissez-faire um, is is perverse. It's, it's mistaken and actually will have, it looks like the opposite effect if, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of what you're saying is true. So, so I, I, I agree, and the, the, it raises the obvious question of, well, then what, what is the solution, right? Who is the agent um, for the restoration of the freedom that we have lost? All right, and I uh, await your answer. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, so I can tell you what some people that I cover in right. the book. So your, think. La your I final chapter is uh, Thomas, Thomas Piketty. Yeah, so. yeah, Piketty. Yeah, I mean. Again, Piketty is not um, anti-market by any means. He's not a, a rabid communist or um, or anything like that. But he does think that um, we have fallen into an inegalitarian spiral, right? Um, that um, and that the only way to get out of it is for the rich to pay a whole heck of a lot more tax. Uh -huh. Who, who's right, going to make so his? Right. So, so <laughs> that is the million dollar question. I guess, actually, that's the trillion, the trillion dollar question, yeah. isn't it? I mean, 
I guess it depends on how you interpret Piketty. I interpret him as pretty pessimistic on this front, yeah. right? I mean, his point is that, okay, so if we want a tax on... Not, I mean, income is uh, a side concern. He's sort of much more interested in, in wealth from assets like uh, capital, yeah. um, not, not um, like... Um, income. Uh, yeah, so sorry, he's not. He's much less interested in income, and he's much more interested in the wealth generated by financial right, assets, exactly. real estate, stocks, bonds, and things like that. Um, and his feeling is that the real challenge when it comes to levying taxes on these sorts of instruments is that they are just so global by nature, right? Money is crossing borders in such um, an obscure and difficult to track way that. He's ultimately quite pessimistic about the possibility uh, of uh, uh, an effectively levying such an am- ambitious tax plan, uh-huh. right? Which again is like um, taxing a small percentage of the uh, billionaires and a slightly larger percentage of well, so 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 capital. So capital is quite um, pessimistic, I would say. I mean, he has a little bit of optimism when it comes to Europe because of the political infrastructure that already exists, right, in the EU. Yeah. Um, but 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 even so, um, you know, he says we've fallen down into a spiral, and it's hard to see how we can get. Well, they out. have to. So, they have so, to just so, shut so, down Switzerland and Luxembourg and Andorra and Ireland. Yeah. I, I, but, I, <laughs> I mean, it's well the, the the lack of transparency that characterizes the, the the banking communities in those countries is really at the root of the problem, right? If you want to effectively tax people, then you need to know how much they have, right. how much they earn, and unfortunately, that is a uh, very pressing and difficult problem. So, so maybe then the ant- maybe then a more realistic answer um, or a more um, a practicable answer comes from Rawls, right? Who uses a much more national framework for these sorts of things, right? Talks about the sorts of um, domestic political institutions required um, to um, restore freedom for a greater uh, por- portion of society. But, but why? It, but, but, um, again, I mean, the, Rawls would depend on taxation, agent, right? Uh, so. How are yes, you going to pull that right. off? It yeah. doesn't. Don't the same objections that you raised to Piketty um, arise for Rawls as well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that we probably have um, more information in the, in the Rawlsian case about um, d- domestic wealth and income, right? Than we do on the sort of like massive uh, global scale that Piketty talks about. Um, so, so, so you're right that taxation is without a doubt a big part of the Rawlsian program, right? He imagines a much more burdensome progressive tax designed to redistribute income from rich to poor, right? Um, he also thinks that there ought to be um, a quite burdensome tax on bequests and inheritances because um, the intergenerational transmission of wealth, which is a big thing, theme in capital as well, um, also um, plagues Rawls. Um, at the level of politics, right, he talks about laws related to um, um, 
campaign financing and um, political speech, right? The um, access that certain groups have to mass media, right? These are sort of, um, I guess, more um, practical All right. planks, All right. So, right? So, so look, I'm gonna. I, I keep summarizing the the whole story, but it, it helps get me back on track. <laughs> so, um, market's good until. Or sorry, markets bad until you realize you can use them to get out of feudalism. So when you're comparing it to living under a feudal ma- master, <laughs> markets good. Markets good. When you're good. comparing it to living under uh, one of Stalin's five year plans, markets also good. Mar- yes, markets also good. But when you compare it to the compare like um, the state of laissez-faire or market commercial society today to any of the philosophical justifications for it, it falls very, very short. It doesn't realize the efficiency that we want. It doesn't realize the human freedom that we want. And one of the big reasons you're pointing to um, through Piketty and Rawls is inequality, right? And so we're looking for an answer of how to reduce uh, inequality. We can... We could even set the efficiency argument aside. I mean, we can say maybe markets are indeed the most efficient. Like maybe that they do. I mean, the evidence speaks for itself. They make a lot of billionaires. Um, that they, yeah, they are. Um, there is no better way to make a lot of money. But uh, the, the the question right relates to distribution. Okay. Well, I mean, right? you you if, mentioned possibilities about taxation and um you know taxing inheritances but you also have a chapter on lenin um have have we got any interesting answers there oh um (laughs) (laughs) i'm not very kind to lenin i mean um i find the the reason that i have a chapter on lenin is because i find it much easier well not easier but i find that um we understand marx better when we get lenin's side of it right um um but i'm not very kind to lenin either (laughs) i mean i mean uh well look you're 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 pessimistic about uh of piketty solutions i'm a dismal failure (laughs) (laughs) i i I mean so so anyway the reason that there's a chapter um on Lenin is because of um, an, a sort of subtle critique. Well, because of the fact that we don't get a lot of um, practical, um, political, institutional stuff in Marx. Okay. Right. So that's why the I I think that um, Lenin sees himself um, sort of um, cashing Marx out on a, a, a um, at the political institutional level. Right, what the um, um, dictatorship of the proletariat uh-huh. actually looks like, and of course, it's an unimaginable catastrophe. <laughs> okay, so no revolution, Jeffrey. Fine. Um, but suppose we we shelve the idea of a uh, dictatorship of the proletariat for the moment, and we talk about <laughs> uh, voting within the context of like capitalist countries nowadays. Right, one of the really cool and interesting things about this book is that you have all these chapters of thinkers who are critical of of market society and how it works so you have marx and and lenin even though you're not that uh positive about lenin but you have all these critical voices 
But what strikes me and is interesting is even the pro-market voices, the, the Smiths and the Hayeks, if you follow them, you still don't get to the level of laissez-faire capitalism that people want today. You don't get to neoliberalism. Um, and so it seems like if I, uh, even if I take the most like right-wing pro-market guys in your book, like Hayek, and I go based on his arguments, I still vote for the left-wing party, like the Democrats in the States or the NDP in Canada or Labour in, in the UK, something like that. Is is that right? Does Hayek tell us to um, vote left? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't possibly interest you in a revolution. <laughs> I, I mean... Right. Um, well, I, I mean, I, I can't believe that you've uh, got me into defending Hayek so <laughs> staunchly. I mean, I, you're you're defending I Hayek that, though as like a light of of the electoral left uh, that exists yeah. right now. <laughs> like follow Hayek. Well, I mean, vote not, NDP. Yeah. Well. Again, compared to his acolytes, I think that's not an unfair depiction. But um, I, th I mean, so 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 you're saying having accumulated all of this, um, all this, um, <laughs> all these opinions about markets and uh -huh. whether they're good or bad, um, I mean, I hate to take the sort of like predictable middle ground, right? But it, it seems to me Canadians, man, that we every time. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, we again, we, 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 I took, we, like you said, we went down that revolutionary road with um, Marx and Lenin, and well, we don't want to go down that, that road again. Um, we've gone too far in the other direction with our, uh, with by following um, Buchanan and uh, Friedman, and things didn't turn out very uh -huh. well, as um, our present day reality attests to. Um, so it is, a, I think, a matter of um, finding that um, middle ground which leans um, left. I, I, I love this because right, there's so much there's so much debate today. Like, wither the left? Where should the left look for inspiration and thought? And they're like, you know, uh, is is it Lenin? Is it, uh, is, no. it is it anarchism? Is it this? Is it that? And no. you're saying, hey, you know what? You're Further left on the spectrum than any of the available parties, if you follow Hayek, <laughs> uh, which is you know horrifying well, in a way, but uh, hilarious. Let's let's forget. <laughs> I mean, we don't. I mean, we don't need to. I mean, could we? I think the point is, if you're trying to convince someone, let's uh -huh. so, so let's say you're having an argument with someone who tends towards the, the the right end of the ideological spectrum when it comes to markets, right? And you 
you engage them in arguments and you want to meet them on their terms, right? You want to speak to them in a language that they're going to understand, yeah. right? Well, then you have to speak to them about the language of freedom, right? And I think that is um, what what my, my book is about, like trying to understand what um, freedom means in the context of a market society and if we map the sort of freedom that we have today onto the sort of freedom that other people, uh, the, sorry, if that um, the earliest defenders of market society right yeah. a- adopted, there it's night and day. Okay, so tell me to make to make it concrete. Tell me how higher taxes will set me free. Sure. <laughs> um, we begin with the um, heroic assumption <laughs> that those higher taxes will be um, um, effectively spent. And what effectively spent <clears throat> means in the context of the conversation that we've been having is that those taxes will be used for the sort of opportunity enlarging redistribution. Like, what does that mean? Right. So it means that um, um, people need to have a baseline of meaningful economic security. And that economic security is then the um, <clears throat> launching point for engaging in the sorts of experiments and the sorts of um, entrepreneurial activity that led really clever people to celebrate the market in the first place. Great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. right. I, I, be, be, I mean, that's what it boils down to. Like, if we hate society today, yeah, right. <laughs> we, I guess, we can take if out. Right. We hate our society today, yeah. right, because we find that the um, uh, avenue of opportunities has been so um, tragically constrained. Right. Yeah. And, and so what we, you know, what we need to do is um, to enlarge the range of opportunities for self-development, self-realization, meaningful participation. Right. So the reason right? the reason um, all um, this like market um, activity and getting richer mattered in the first place was because it would give us opportunities to like live a freer and better life. And mm-hmm. so if it doesn't, if it just leads to opportunities uh, for tech billionaires to build bunkers in New Zealand and um, everyone else to lead a life of um, desperation online and off. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Then, then even if markets are formally free, they're not creating any human freedom. Yeah. I I think that's right. I mean, the, the, the reason that um, we uh, began by uh, that we began by celebrating these markets is because of the um, range of opportunities they presented. Uh-huh. I, I, like um, we we keep bringing up this feudal um, contrast, but the idea is there were no meaningful opportunities, right? Your place in in society was mm-hmm. set for life, and you had no meaningful control over it, right? And the market kind of opened things up, right? Opened up. Um, a multitude of avenues for self-development and self-realization. And if those avenues are no for, longer like, material open, then prosperity. Yeah, for, uh, um, 
yeah, we begin with security, yeah. right? Meaningful economic security, and maybe we can even get to prosperity, right? But even security alone is is um, a meaningful objective, yeah. right? Which goes back to the, the tax question, right? Redistribution, it, the, the aim of redistribution through taxation should be the kind of universal security, right? Economic security that makes... Um, self-confidence possible and with self-confidence action right activity uh-huh. great i love it so i think um that might be a good place to stop on the note that uh more taxation and redistribution will actually create more freedom more human liberty than uh a more less safe fair policy and that's a interesting idea we've been going on for a while so in closing, could you just tell um, tell us where everyone can find you? Are you online, on social media, and where can we buy the book? My social media presence is very weak. I'm not going to tell you to buy the book on Amazon because that is, you know, that's bad. Um, where can you buy the book? Um, probably not at your local bookstore because I doubt your local bookstore would have this book. But um, You can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> Or maybe U of T Press. Is that a small business? Does that? Uh-huh. No, probably not. But I guess U of T Press is the best way to, to, to purchase it. Or just email me and I'll, se- I'll, I'll send you a, f- a free copy. <laughs> okay, so A History of Political Thought, Property, Labor, and Commerce from Plato to Piketty, um, from U of T Press, University of Toronto Press, uh, in 2020. Thanks, Clifton. Thanks for having me. Uh, It was my great pleasure. Thanks for coming on, Jeffrey. (laughs)